Amen. Go and have a seat, church. Yeah, praise God. Praise God. Uh, good to see everybody this morning. Thank you for uh, braving the rain in the good Lord's name. Uh, those of you who are, are wounded uh, from last night's Chargers collapse, you made it anyway. Um, but it serves you right for still supporting the Chargers is uh, the way I look at it. So welcome this morning. Uh, we're going to be in James chapter 5. If you have a Bible, Bible app, go ahead and get it open uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at relationships in general, and today uh, we're looking at games, as we are through all of this, but we're picking a timeless classic, one that requires no board whatsoever. We're going to pick charades, all right? And charades, um, we're going to do it through the lens like we did last week, okay? I want to be clear about something. Games are stuff that we love to do. We love playing games. We play tons of games, video games. Uh, the Chargers collapse last night was in a game, right? You have... The huge sports industry, the casino industry, the video game industry, the board game industry, games, 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 games. Uh, companies love to find ways to gamify the different things that they do when you're in class. Uh, when I was in third grade, I was the math flashcard champion of the school. And the way that they did it, they got us excited about math, was they would put everybody in a desk and you would stand up behind somebody's desk, they'd flip a flashcard, whoever got it first. If you got it first, you had to go to the next one. If you didn't, then you had to sit down and they got to stand up and go through the room. But you had to go through the whole thing. And if somebody could do that within the class, you were the champ. And it felt good. Math on its own stinketh, to use the King James. But if you gamify it, it makes it fun. All right? Um, our spiritual lives are not a game. They are an adventure, but they're not a game. And it, and it does have some fun to it at times, but it's, it's not a game. It's very serious. And charades is a game in which you act out a phrase without using words. It takes no board. It takes no pieces. It's a popular game in which somebody acts something out without speaking, and their team tries to guess what it is that they're acting out. And people are screaming, and they're laughing, and they're having all kinds of fun. You get to watch people that are normally fairly straight-laced and distinguished act crazy so that you will get the word. There's a time on it, and so the closer the time is running out, the more aggressive people get. So you get to watch your, your great uncle Goober over there flapping his arms around, and, and you get to watch your grandma try and imitate Elvis and shake her hips in ways you didn't know she was capable of. But all of a sudden, you're like, wow, I did not think I would see that today. And then you get to see all these, uh, the little kids try and do things that are over their head, and you get to see people do that. And everybody's, it's chaos. It's, it's, a, it's a fun, screaming, laughing kind of game, the kind I, I typically hate, okay? I'm more of a, like, let's sit down and let's, let's, let's strategize together. Uh, I don't want any time. Let's take our time. Let's play Risk. Uh, or let's play Monopoly. That's next week's game, right? We're going to sit here and kind of Kind of, kind of reason together. But charades is for all you monkey types, all right? The types that, that really enjoy screaming and chaos and, and, and things like that. We're going to use that as, a, as an illustration of how we do relationships sometimes, good, bad, and ugly. When we, uh, when we play charades as a fun game, just a way to have some fun, no problem. It's awesome. But the idea that I'm going to act out something... I'm going to act in order to get you to think I'm, I'm trying to communicate this. Uh, it can become a way of life for people. That, that acting, trying to, the way you present yourself to people, in order to lead them to a particular conclusion, rather than just being authentic with people. 
the more our culture goes away from face-to-face communication and goes online with everything, there's nothing wrong with online, but, but you can use it as an overdosing kind of substitute for person-to-person interaction, uh, the, the more this has become a problem. Where people are free to kind of say, okay, because you can't call me on it because you're not here, I'm going to project this picture of myself that I think will cause you to think this about me. And as long, I might even turn the comments off. And that way you can't even comment on it or whatever. Or we, and we do it back. We want them to think that we think that they are that way. So even if we think they look ridiculous in the picture, we'll say, beautiful, heart, heart emoji eye thing, right? You know, um, oh, what a sweet picture, you know, because we want to communicate to them something that we don't actually believe, but there's a place for that. We'll talk about that later. Compassion is a good thing. But what ends up happening is when people take that on as a way of life, right, they, they, um, they expect people to either obey the veneer they put up or to see through it. They should have known. That kind of thing, right? So, so either way, rather than just dealing with people in a very honest way in a life of integrity and community, you hinder your relationships. Scripture presents us with a lot of different texts on relationships. I couldn't begin to get into them all. But I'm going to choose James 5 today. And in James 5, he talks uh, at great length about the community, and he does it in the context of, of lots of different things about living out your faith and not just being here, hearing uh, the word, but doing what it says. It's a way of saying, don't play charades with things. Like, be authentic. Do what it says. Don't just go, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Do what it says. Uh, tomorrow when we celebrate Martin Luther King, are we just going to celebrate his great speeches and his soaring rhetoric, or are we going to do what he says? Not that he's Jesus, but he was a preacher who pointed people to Jesus. And I want to say to people, it's not just what he taught about race, it's that that was rooted in the gospel. He was a preacher first. People forget that. So, let's go back to our own mess. James chapter 5. He seems to be talking about the tongue a lot, what we say. Not slandering, not gossiping. You can set the whole hillside on fire, boats on fire. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's full of deadly poison. He says you can do great damage with the tongue. He is 100% right. I haven't met many people that would disagree with that, actually. Uh, yeah, we can do a lot of damage with what we say. But why is he talking about it as often as he does? I think it's because he is about to talk at great length about the community of faith. And if you have a church or a community of faith where the relationships are battered and bruised or set on fire or poisoned by gossip and slander and things like that, then you can't have what he's going to kind of hold up as the ideal, this community of grace. So in James 5, 13 to 20, here's what he says. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other, huh? and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. 
The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human, as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, so now he's entertaining the idea that somebody's wander off, if somebody brings you back, you can be sure that whoever brings this sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Listen to how woven together every single aspect of life is for those people. You in trouble? You sick? Somebody wander off? Somebody involved in sin? The community's got a role to play. God wants the church to be the gracious community. So here are some of the occasions, again, that, that James mentions. Hardships, happiness, sickness, sinfulness, wandering from the faith. In short, more or less, whatever is happening in life, we share it with one another. To quote Paul in Galatians chapter 6, we bear one another's burdens and in so doing fulfill the law of Christ. Now, around this section, again, are these lengthy texts talking about the tongue, uh, the power of what we say to give life, to hurt life. And so we get this picture of this ideal, something that God would bring God great pleasure to see people praying for each other and confessing to one another and leading one another back as strays from the faith. It's a blessing to have a community around you that prays for you, that handles sin redemptively, is real with one another. The community imagined in Scripture is no game. It certainly does not play charades. Charades as a game is fun. Charades as a way of life is no game at all. It erodes relationships and prevents us from experiencing what God would have us to. Now, there are two great enemies of great relationships in the Bible. There are two sides of the same coin. Pride and fear. Pride is that part of you that says, I need to look good to others all the time. I can't let people see me uh, with no makeup on, spiritually speaking. Uh, I got to look prim and ready to go. I got to look like I have my stuff together. Or another part of pridefulness is the it's not my fault disease. Or I shouldn't have to be the one who disease. Because to a prideful person, they are rarely, if ever, wrong. They live only in varying degrees of being right in their own mind. And being right to them is more important than presenting oneself truthfully. Image is greater than confession. Now, a prideful person is likely to struggle in relationships because they lack the integrity to be authentic with other people, the humility to show grace toward other people. They tend to puff up and say, well, I'm glad I'm not like they are. Glad I never struggle with that. That's why I work hard not to do that. Those kind of things. The humility to show grace toward others, and rarely are they able to adjust how they relate to others because in their mind, they don't have a problem. And the fact that they believe they can't be the problem is their problem. They are always changing things around them and working on trying to fix others rather than working on themselves. Now, pride's illegitimate child is self-deception. And that leads you to believe that because you have all the reason in the world to be proud, I'm not proud. I just, I just like the fact that I'm perfect. You know, and so I have nothing to be sad about or humble about. I have nothing to confess because I'm fairly sinless. Here's what John says, 1 John 1, 8 to 10. 
If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we haven't sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. He's saying, look, you can believe you don't sin or you can believe yours isn't that bad or you can believe any of that stuff. He goes, but if you do that, you're just a liar. You just lie to yourself. You call God a liar, you make a liar of God because God already told you. You're sinful. You sin regularly. So a better posture is humility before God and confession that says, okay, I'm coming before God, a holy God, humbly, saying, God, I understand that I've fallen short and I'm relying on your grace to make me whole again, to cleanse me from my sin, and I believe that you're going to do it because it's what you want to do. God's not the angry guy in the sky with the arms folded and all that stuff. He's, he's the father that runs back after the child who turns back toward him. Greg Rochelle, one of my favorite uh, mentor pastors, says, people would rather follow a leader who was always real than always right. I love that. Like, and that matches my experience. Because a leader who thinks they're right all the time, first of all, is lying. And, and number two, nobody's right all the time. So you're not fooling anybody. If you find yourself thinking you're right all the time, you're just lying to yourself. Uh, but then if you find yourself being wrong and you try to present yourself as right because you're afraid that nobody will respect you otherwise, then you find yourself acting. Sounds like fraud, really. Relationship fraud. It's just... I'm not this, but I'm going to present myself as this so that you'll think I'm that. I might add, people will usually relate better to an authentic person than a perfect person because they can't relate to perfection. People can relate to authenticity, not perfection, because very few people think they're actually perfect. Uh, the Golden Globes were last week, or this past week, and uh, it's always great. I love watching these, see these people, they're all dressed up, tuxedos. I mean, they've been in the makeup chair all day long. They've had their faces exfoliated and whatever else you can do to your face. And they are ready and they are ready to go. Now, I went to college in Malibu and it was pretty common for me to run into these people on Wednesday when they'd been off the set for months. And they were just in their sweatpants and looking as scraggly as everybody else did. They hadn't shaved their face Hadn't shaved their legs, uh, like to the point that you would almost assume there were some of them that almost look homeless. Like you would, you would see them in the grocery store, and you're like, and then you'd look a little closer, and you're like, oh, that's Nick Nolte, or that's Brad Cooper, or somebody. That's not, so that's how, the question is, which of these two do they actually look like? Do they actually look run down all the time? Probably not. Do they look tuxedo ready, like give me the award tonight on the stage? Well, no. And neither do most people, right? So my question is, why is it that we always want to be ready to receive the award when we relate to people? Rather than being able to say, you know what? Oh, how was your week? You know what? It was horrible, actually. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But, but I'm glad I'm here. I need to be with the body this week. I need to, you know, it's a way of saying, I trust you enough to be honest. 
And most people will honor that with, with empathy. With, come here, or hey, can I pray for you? Or, you know what, my week was terrible too. Glad we can kind of let the old guard down now. Or maybe you come in and you're ecstatic, but you know somebody else is having a bad week, so you try to put a lid on yours. You're going around the circle, you had the week of your life. It's been years since you had a week this great, but somebody else is depressed, so you don't want to make them feel bad, so how was your week? Oh, you know, it's, it's all right, you know. Put a lid on it because you don't want people to feel bad in the circle, right? So you do that, and so nobody ever knows all the great things that happened to you that week when you had the opportunity to lift everybody up by celebrating with you. It's like Paul says, when the one part rejoices, the whole body rejoices with it, right? That, that piece. Charades. The second enemy we mentioned is fear. Some of you will remember the old movie Charade, Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant. There's a point in the movie where Audrey Hepburn turns to Cary Grant and asks him, why do people lie? Cary Grant says, people lie because they want something and fear the truth will not get it for them. And I'm like, yep. Pretty much nailed it. Fearful people lie because they don't believe that if they were actually, if people knew who they actually were, they think people would reject them. Fear leads to fraud in relationships. Another way fear gets in the way, I'm afraid of what people would think of me if they really knew who I was, uh, and in this case, I act the way I feel like I need to act in order to be accepted before God and others. But here's the good news, okay? Put this one in lights. Grace, grace is the foundation of all God-honoring relationships. Grace. Let's talk about it. God, I hate to, you know, I don't care if you believe in God, if you follow God, he still knows you. Like there's nothing about uh, what you think of him that changes what he knows about you. Nor is there something you can do that would change his love for you. He loves what Henry Nouwen called the unadorned self, the the. the the me that is stripped of all accomplishments and anything that would make me uh, desirable. Uh, any intellect, any charm, any looks, any I mean, fill in the blank with whatever you think you put forth, okay? That God loves that you, the you before you had anything to offer. That's the you that God loves. Not the you decorated like a Christmas tree. Not you, golden globe ready. That's the you he loves, the unadorned self. And once I do that, once I understand how much God loves me and the extent of his love, and the more I walk in that, the less I need that from you because I already feel loved fully. Does that make sense? Here's how David put it. Psalm 139, 1 to 6. Oh, Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down and stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, O oh Lord. You go before me and follow me. I love this image. You place your hand of blessing on my head. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Translation, God doesn't do charades, God does reality. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows everything before you, before you thought it. He already knew you were going to think that. Everything you've thought, you can't run away from him. He's everywhere. God not only knows us better than we know ourselves, he loves us more than we love ourselves. And that's the part that then gives you the freedom to face the rejection of others, if need be. Uh, to be honest with people. And to show grace, because once I feel loved by God and I understand the depth of the grace of God, and I know then that that's the will of God, if I'm following Jesus, then that means something, that's something I want to offer to people. So grace becomes this foundation for everything. The reason I can be authentic with others is because I don't depend on them to feel loved. I am completely and utterly loved by God, even with all my faults. And on that basis... We love each other because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. Secondly, God's grace transforms our relationships for the good. We speak, we pray, we confess, we don't perform. We don't act on stage. We seek clarity, confession, and compassion. Now take those three. Clarity means... I'm clear about my values. I tell people what I think. I'm clear about how I feel and where I'm at. See, when you're, when you're playing charades, there's really only one time that everybody kind of gets testy. It's if the game's close and time runs out before you get the word right. And so you got uh, Uncle Beavis or whoever. He's, he's, he's uh, sitting there flapping his arms. Two words. Sounds like seagull. And he's pointing at his head. And he thinks he's doing a phenomenal job. He's trying to get bald eagle through. But when they see him flapping his arms, they think he's trying to flex like this. Because his, his flapping is ridiculous and terrible. And then he's pointing at his head. And so they're like muscle head. And it's done and they lose the word. And he's like, what's the matter with you people? What were you trying? What was it? Bald eagle. Bald eagle. Why were you flexing? I wasn't flexing. I was flapping. Why were you pointing at your head? Bald. Hello. Well, privately, somebody on the team knew it was bald, but they didn't want to make him feel bad by saying he was bald. So they didn't say anything, right? And, the, and so all of a sudden, and they never say anything. They just let it go. And they're kind of, I kind of knew it was bald. But they didn't want it because what if I'm wrong and I say bald and it wasn't bald, then he's going to hate me because I insulted him in front of everybody and I don't want to hurt his feelings. And so everybody starts pointing fingers. You're a bad team. No, you're a bad actor. No, you're a bad team. It was clear as day. Bald eagle. And they kind of go, no, 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 no. Muscle head. That's not what happened. So you can't use words in charades. But here's the good news. You can in life. You can. When people aren't willing to talk honestly to each other, they can't understand each other. In charades, you cannot use words. In life, you can. It's okay to consider the needs of others uh, over your own or be a team player in group settings. There's a time and a place, and there's nuance to everything I'm saying. There are exceptions all over the place. 
But that's different than being a person who primarily plays charades and is unwilling to articulate what they really think. Um, since we're being authentic, um, let's, let's get personal, shall we? Um, so every now and then, not, not two, three times a year, somebody will show up here at NBC, and they will transfer in. We, we try to get a little know, their, uh, know a little bit about their story, and they'll say something to the effect of, um, you know what hurts is that I left and nobody noticed. Okay? Now, to be clear, there are times where that's legit, and that's a, a ruthless commentary on the church. But here's another thing it tells me. You didn't tell anybody you were leaving. That tells me, I know that. The other thing I know is, uh, if, if you were deeply plugged into the church, they would have noticed. That's also a fact, for the most part. Again, there are churches where there's, there's an exception to this, uh, especially in larger ones where there's a lot of, but, but you hear that, you go, okay, so was there a point in time at which you, when you had some concerns that you told people, you went to the leadership and you said, hey, here's what I'm dealing with, or were you in a group? No. Did you serve anywhere? No. How often did you go to church? Oh, as often as I could. How often's that? Oh, you know, on and off. On and off. So the question is not really, in my mind, I don't say it this bluntly to people, is not how did your church do you wrong, but how were you doing your church wrong while you were there? Because if you're not actually in and you're not actually relating to people, why is it their fault? If our, if our church were to dissolve today and go out into the middle of nowhere and nobody noticed, yes, that would be a, an indictment on our church. If we went missing today, people would notice. <laughs> our community would notice. It would hurt, right? And that's good. It means you're involved enough, you're contributing enough to what's going on in your city that they care about you. So, for the love of God, I mean that quite literally. If you're going to do church, do it. Get plugged in. Get in a group. Get around some other Christians. Serve. Give. Lift your hands in praise. Praise the Lord. Greet your brothers and sisters. Because that's how this kind of community happens. And to not do it, you're not only are you robbing your sisters and brothers around you of what you have to offer, but you are being robbed you're robbing yourself. You're self-robbing, if that's a word. Yourself from all that he mentions here. If nobody noticed, did you really go there? Was the question. And it, at the very least, we'd want to have some communication about what was, what's going on. Like, talk to us. How can we help you? It was this 10 years ago or so, very early days of our church, uh, and I, I started getting murmurs back from people in the church that uh, there was a lady who was upset with me because I wasn't saying hi to her in, in the lobby. And, uh, and she's gone on to be with the Lord now, so, uh, and, and it all worked itself out over time. But um, I, I was like, I have never even, I don't even know where she is. I haven't seen her. And you're like, oh, yeah, she's walking around. She says you don't talk to her. I was like, hmm, Okay. And uh, those of you who are familiar with our old Juniper property, it's kind of hard to, like, miss somebody in there. Kind of forced you geographically into places where you'd see somebody. 
Well, one day I'm going through the lobby, uh, which is about half the size of the one we've got out there, and I hear this rustling. And I look over, and there are some artificial plants in the corner of the lobby. And this lady had hid behind, was hiding behind the plants. And I was like, I walked over. I, and then right as I get there, she kind of jumps out. And I was like, what are you doing in the, in the plants? And so I was, you know, I was, it's just, I was it's like, hey, I've heard that you're saying that I don't say hi to you. Are you, are you hiding in the bushes, literally, when I walk in to the lobby so that you can be mad at me for not talking to you? No. Of course not. And it's like, well, how come I never see you or walking around the campus? Oh, I'm around. I'm around and everything like that. Well, of course, we find out, yes, that's exactly what she's doing. Now, I may not be in the bushes every Sunday. Sometimes it's like, do I need to look in a tree for this lady? Like, where is she going to be? And then, so you started, and I, and I just told her, I said, hey, listen, I would love to say hi to you, but I, I can't take time to go find you hiding on a Sunday. So I need you to find a way. I'm easy to find. I'm walking around, and there was no backstage in that building. I mean, I was out. Come say hi to me. Well, then that, was, that became a problem because when I would see her, it was the complaint hour. And we had two services like we do now, and I'd get sideswiped when I'd, when I'd meet her right before the service started, right? Which impacts the way that you think. So sometimes it was uh, how loud the music was, sometimes the way I was dressed, sometimes it was uh, that <laughs> uh, I hadn't said hi to her the week before in the lobby or whatever, right? And it was one of those things. So I have a choice to make, right? I can... I can do what, what, frankly, 90% of pastors in the country would have done, which is just go along with it and tolerate it. But the way that I felt at the time, I went back to a time in my life where I had somebody where I was acting like a, a knucklehead that had the, the guts to tell me the truth about the way I was acting and call it out. And it changed the course of my life. And I said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say something. So I... I I pulled her aside. I said, hey, listen, now we've figured out this whole, like, being in proximity to each other thing, I want to let you know something. When you make a decision to, on a weekly basis, simply be critical of me, it negatively impacts the way that I feel, which negatively impacts the way that I preach, which then negatively impacts the spiritual life of the church. So if that's how you continue to, to act, I'm going to avoid you. Okay, because it's too important that I be able to, to do this. Now, what I would hope is that you would be willing, as I'm trying to increase my sensitivity to you, that you might be willing to consider adjusting your attitude. And let me challenge you, instead of coming in going, what can I be critical about today? Come in and say something nice. I don't care what it is. You can say, oh, the sidewalk's not cracked today. That's fine. It, it's a spiritual discipline to be encouraging. Can you do that? And if you do that, I will do this. I'm going to try and increase my sensitivity to you. And we'll take it from there. How's that sound? She accepted. And over the next several years, we kind of became, I don't know if I, we're my best friends, but we were kind of friends. In fact, it was, it was funny. I remember one time we were out there by the coffee pot 
And we kind of bumped into each other back to back, turned around to see who was behind. And she looks at me, and I look at her, and she's like, hi, Tim. <laughs> like that. Like she was calling back to when we first kind of got to know each other, you know. And so, and I found myself thinking to myself, I go, okay, so how would my relationship with her have been different if I'd never said anything? And I just simply said, yep, I'm going to let her sideswipe me every single Sunday because I'm too fearful or insecure. I don't want the church to think that I'm aloof or distant. So I have to go in and take the beating from her every single week. And what does it do to her to have somebody not tell her that so that she continues to go on and basically be a relational repellent to everybody else around her? Do you see how playing charades gets you in trouble? It leads you into things like the Abilene Paradox is what it's called. It goes back to an article, a management article written in the 70s. And uh, there's a family, and they're in Coleman, Texas. Uh, the mother-in-law, father-in-law, father and mother. And as the story goes, I think it's the uh, mother-in-law says, hey, you know what, let's go to Abilene and have dinner. It's about 50 miles away from Coleman. So they're sitting there, and the wife then says, oh, that's a great idea. The husband has reservations about it because the drive's long and it's hot, and he thinks that his preferences must be out of step with the group. And so he says, sounds good to me. I just hope mom wants to go. And mother-in-law then says, well, of course I want to go. I haven't been to Abilene in a long time. So the drive is on, it's hot, dusty, long. When they arrive at the cafeteria, the food is as bad as the drive is. They arrive back home four hours later. They're tired and cranky and exhausted and kind of hungry because the food was disgusting. A lot of them didn't even eat the food. So one of them walks in and says, boy, it was a great trip, wasn't it? <laughs> and the mother-in-law says that actually I would have rather stayed home, but I went along since the three of you were so enthusiastic the husband says, well, I wasn't delighted to be going, doing what we were doing. I only went to satisfy the rest of you. The wife says, I just went along to keep you happy. I would have had to be crazy to want to go out in the heat like that. Father-in-law then says that he only suggested it because the others thought they might be bored. So they all sit back perplexed that somehow they together decided to take a trip that none of them wanted. They each would have preferred to sit comfortably, but they didn't want to admit to it when they still had time to enjoy the afternoon. Sisters and brothers, what I'm suggesting is we can't, if we can't be honest with one another about where we would like to have dinner, how are we going to be honest about our sins? When James says, confess your sins one to another. That's the last one. And I'm going to have to give this one a little short shrift today, but that's the way it goes. Confession means I'm honest about how I'm doing and about my struggles and victories. It's not just the negative stuff. Confession is also the positive. It's being able to celebrate victories with one another. James here highlights sin. He says we should confess our sins one to another and pray for one another because there is power in truth and prayer. He highlights Elijah and says, remember Elijah? He was a man just like you when he prayed and it stopped raining and then he prayed and it rained again. And he says, it's the same way. And if you're sick, get the church around you to pray for you. If... if if you're in trouble, pray together. If you're happy, sing songs of praise to God. And compassion means I forgive those who sin against me and bring the kindness of Christ to bear on all situations. Being truthful with people and 
and talking directly with people does not mean that every little thing they do, you confront them on. Proverbs 19.11 says, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. Now, notice the key there, overlook, meaning they don't bottle up wrongs. They don't hold on to wrongs. They overlook it. So this morning, um, let's take James 5, 13 to 20, and ask that God would make it so among us, and that whether it's in your home, here in the church, that we would stop playing charades, and that we would learn how to talk to each other in very honest ways, knowing and trusting the grace of God will be alive and working inside the church when we do so. It gives us the courage to confront in honesty and to show grace. So may it be so among us. We're going to gather around the Lord's table at this time. I pray that uh, um, as we take communion, you'll do some thinking about how you can tweak various aspects of relational Life. Maybe it's to start overlooking wrongs a bit more, the stuff that isn't that uh, powerful. And by the way, you should have gotten the elements on the way in if you didn't, and you'd like them, just put your hand in the air. We'll bring them to you. Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. We love each other because he first loved us. we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Father, for the community of grace that you envisioned when you created the church, Father, we long for it and we ask that you help us to be a constructive part where iron sharpens iron where we confess how we're doing openly, how, how we need help spiritually, uh, how we need to be restored, Father. If there are people wandering, uh, may we be those who go and get them and bring them back into the fold of Jesus. Father, we want to be and we aspire to, to that kind of community, Father, and we look forward to all of the friendships and the, and the ways that... that in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit will, will help our relationships flourish, whether it's in our homes, here in the church, Father, in our small groups, in our, the groups we serve in here at NBC, Father. We love you, Lord. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.